listening to Ding Dong Darkness Time Season 2, Stephen King Boogaloo. I gathered several of my most well-read friends together to discuss many of our favorite works by the master of the macabre himself. If you like what you hear, tell the world. In the meantime, let's talk some scary stories. Oh, and beware the spoilers, folks. They're a doozy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Ding Dong Darkness Time. This is part two of the discussion on Stephen King's The Body and Rob Reiner's adaptation, Stand By Me. If you haven't caught part one yet, I highly recommend you go back and do that before continuing with this one, as we're picking right back up where we left off. Enjoy. So the little story, Stud City, that's in The Body um, in that story, the narrator's brother was killed by a car that comes off the, the track. Um, and so, again, it, there's the sense that, like, not always the, the best people don't always make it. Yeah. Um, and that there is a bunch of random goocher sort of mm-hmm. circumstance. Big goocher energy. Big goocher energy. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, though, I mean those guys back i mean the 70s and 80s were no slouches in terms of violent crimes so yes. you know that's just life in america if we're being completely honest here across the decades so another one that i love to talk about if we're talking about the stories within the stories we have to talk about the pie contest yes <laughs> the pie eating contest yes young um, master hogan yeah yeah he and Another aside in this, by the way, this is the most infamous scene in the film, I think, aside from the leeches. Um, and <laughs> yes, and I mentioned in my episode with Terry Lynn Coop and about Night Shift, we were in a little aside and she's like, the one scene that can really just get me immediately sick to my stomach is that scene. <laughs> and you, she even thinks about it and she just feels something in the back of her throat. You know what's crazy? It almost didn't get in the movie. So they were actually thinking of a different story and Reiner was like, it just didn't seem like a kind of story Gordy would tell that might be a little more sophisticated. So they almost went in a different direction, but then ultimately decided to keep it there. So we almost didn't even get it. It made sense because I think they ultimately decided, oh, well, we're not thinking about the storyteller he becomes. He's still a 12-year-old kid. So we're going to yeah, know exactly. it as it would be seen in the mind of like 12-year-olds. And, and I think it's believable because it's still... At its core, it's still a very interesting tale that seems very plausible for a 12-year-old, where it's like, I'm going to pull a fast one on this town for revenge against all of the awful people. Again, even in this story, there's no reliable adults. (laughs) (laughs) They're all a bunch of jerks. (laughs) You know what's really funny? In that scene, you can see a very alive Ray Brower at the pie-eating contest. He is apparently behind the twins. He's standing there laughing. You can go back and see him. Uh, in in it. But that story, to talk about an inside joke that has been mentioned before on this show and Chris's. So Gordy finishes the story, but it doesn't really end it, right? And Teddy hates, he's like, how does it end? And he's like, I don't know. It just kind of like, he just maybe gets, goes home and, and has, has a, a couple cheeseburger, cheeseburgers. Has a cheeseburger, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's like, well, you know, the story's great, but the ending sucked, which again, calls back to Stephen King's <laughs> reputation. Oh, yeah. Criticism for of bad, you ending. know, yeah, the criticism people have for bad endings that, that again, it just always seems to find its way in, into some of these stories um, that especially, uh, represent King on a personal level. Like, oh, we just got to put this in that you didn't know how to quite end your great story. 
It's funny, the the kids' responses to the story, too, because Teddy's like, well, why don't you have him go home and shoot his dad and then go join the Rangers or something? Right. That's right. what Teddy's <laughs> fantasy is. He's like, that would be good, something good like that. Oh, um, yeah. I and, mean, how do you end a story like that? I, I, I remember trying to think about that at the yeah, time that I, I think read it. I fade out on his achievement, right? Like, it's kind of the way the story ends to me is how it ends. Like yeah. he's sitting there, a, to, a complete and total bar for I think it was that's great. That's the story. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's always that feeling that some readers, and I think that's another commentary on like readers having helpful suggestions, heavy air quotes there. That just say way more about them than, than yeah. anything about the story. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's like, well, you, you, you complete that story. What do you think he does? And so that's kind of the power <laughs> yeah. of the beauty of it, that Teddy can create, turn, you know, Hogan into Rambo. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but that's pretty typical of short stories, right? Short stories don't always give you the conclusion like you might get from a novel. And there's just supposed to like, you, you briefly check in, you briefly check out. Absolutely. So we're covering some of the misadventures that these kids have along the way, right? Um, and we're, we're doing it a little out of order. So don't <laughs> don't jump on me. I haven't gotten any hate mail yet. Oh, I'm cooking something up. You just wait. There's, <laughs> there's going to be like an alternate email account. Somebody will be like, I can't believe you did the leech thing before the bar story. <laughs> um, actually? <laughs> Teddy playing chicken with the train happens kind of early, if I remember correctly. That's like their first encounter once they get on the rails. That's really when we see start. We see Teddy because every place along the way, each of these kids kind of have their own kind of moment slash breakdown slash we're pulling back the curtain and you're going to see kind of like my ugly and painful insides. And mm-hmm. so that was the moment with Teddy because he wants to play chicken with the train and he's crazy enough that he would probably get killed. Right. He, he can't see. That's the other thing. Teddy has like these Coke bottle glasses. Oh, that's right. He can't see. He has a hearing aid. Um, he wants to join the army. He has this delusion that he's going to be able to do it, but he'll never get in with his yeah. physical issues. Right. And his mental ones for that matter. But he's hanging on to that dream and he wants to dodge the train. And of course, Chris and everybody else is like, hell no, don't do it. Like, come on, dude. And Chris finally intervenes at the very last second, drags him off and they roll down the hill and then they kind of have a fight. That's, I can't remember. It might've been not in that moment. It might've been after the um, junkyard with the dog. Oh, it was with the junkyard and the dog because after they have their fight, they go on, they go to the junkyard. They got to cross the junkyard to get to the other side where they need to go. And of course, there's Chop Chopper, the the the, the legendary Choppy sick balls giant dog, right? <laughs> yeah. Owned by the junkyard owner. It reminds me of the dog in Sandlot. I don't know if you guys have seen that yes. movie, where it's like yeah. it's legend to be this massive dog, like the size of like a hippopotamus or something. He is, and then of course he's just this little medium sized kind of like my my late great dog Fez. It's probably yeah. like that. Which I mean, he sort of looks like a a muddy version of like a Labrador Retriever. Like he's sort yeah. of yeah. that yeah. sort of ish basic medium sized mixed dog. Yeah, yeah. Dog. There's you know he's a barky dog, and sometimes that's all you need is a barky dog. But they cross, and then they're climbing the fence on the other side. They almost make it. They're like. Oh, Running, 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 running. And of course, was it um this Teddy's pants that got grabbed by or no, no, they get they get up over the it was Gordy's. That's right. He's Gordy, trying to come back from the grocery store. That's right, that's right. But they get to the other side, and of course, of the fence, and they start 
teasing the dog, you know, they're especially Teddy's like, you know, bite my ass, yeah, uh, yeah. chop, you know, and they're just kind of having fun because they realize chop is just this poor little mongrel dog. He ain't no threat. But then the junkyard owner comes out and he's a big POS and he knows each of the kids and he looks at all of them and just nails something about every one mm-hmm. of them. And then it, of course he singles out Teddy and he talks about, yeah, we heard your dad went section eight and all this. And he's like, you don't talk. And he, that's when Teddy loses it. You don't talk about yeah. my dad. He stormed the beach at Normandy. And then of course the guy laughs and he's like, yeah, he's crazy as a shit house rat. And that's when Teddy has his breakdown and you know, that's when we really see the curtain pulled back. And especially Chris says Teddy's saying he's ranking my old man. Um, and Chris is like, who cares? You know, what he says doesn't matter about your old man. Your old man still stormed the beach in Normandy and all that stuff is still true. And even though Chris has got to think his father is a mess, um, he still knows, he still understands his friend enough to know that he needs to, you know, validate that. It's like his peacemaker side. Like he's not making peace between people, but helping Teddy find his own peace, right? Like, don't listen to this guy. He was trying to smooth it over. And I, I don't know if it's in the book. I can't remember now, but I know the voiceover from Richard Drivas, uh, older Gordy is like, you know, Teddy cares so much for this father who's been abusive to him. And he's like, my dad never laid a hand on me and yeah. I couldn't give two shits about him basically. And it's just that interesting complexities, I guess you could say, of these parent relationships all these kids have. I think there is like a, a silent resentment dynamic that happens in a lot of families where they never laid a hand on me. But there's almost something worse in a way about not being cared for at all like that ambivalence yeah you said the difference between abuse and neglect and it's like they're both awful in a very different way yeah yeah that intensity of feeling that very raw red emotion versus a very neutral washed out desaturated nothingness in the movie even where you see gordy interacting with his parents it's I think almost intentionally washed out the mm-hmm. the colors are faded from the rest of the colors in the movie. I don't know if it's because it's, it, it always sort of felt to me because it's not when he's with the other boys. And so it's a little paler, it's a little less vibrant, but I think it also probably has to do with the sort of washed out way he feels. Correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't there a moment in the book or the movie where he, tries to say he says something to his mom she asked him how his day was and he thought about saying something like horrible and then yeah. she just didn't notice even that or something. or maybe he actually did say like oh yeah we went and did some drinking and we did this and this and this and it's in the book he talks about thinking about it yeah um, and how she would just go uh-huh that's nice yeah. honey <laughs> uh-huh, that's, that's great sweetie like are you gonna take jane to the dance denny yeah like and that's when denny's still alive and so they were ignoring him even before Denny died. At that dinner scene, Denny's like, hey, dad, Gordy wrote a story. It's really good. And they just, the dad, it's like, Kate, I think you said this. It's like the dad cannot even relate to anything yeah. that Gordy is about. So it's almost like that does not compute in one ear, out the other. Okay, back to what I was saying. Like he just heard some static or noise. It went away. Okay, now I can get back to asking the real questions. It's it's very haunting and it's interesting you know the abusive relationship teddy has you at least see some like connection there even as challenging as it seems but you're right when there's negligence or just like you're invisible to me there's no point at which you can even remotely connect 
it's just awful. When you're being hit, it's like, well, at least they're noticing me, huh? <laughs> I mean, I hate to say that's that's dark, but a lot of emotion, a lot of connection there. Yeah. <laughs> but when Gordy's with Chris, he talks about how like he says, My dad doesn't even love me. He doesn't, I must be a bad person. Mm-hmm. Um, and Chris is basically like, No, you're not. And and if they can't see it, then maybe I need to. Oh, yeah. Again, that's sort of like fathering yeah fathering caretaker role yeah there's that point where he's like gee th- oh he's like you're just a kid gordy he's like gee yeah. thanks dad he's like i wish the hell i was your dad you know like he's basically yeah oh it's such a good scene was that was after the leeches wasn't it or yeah I can't re- yeah yeah because they were <sighs> like kind of they were kind of wet and they were like undressed and they were drying mm-hmm. things out. And there was, I think that was that moment in the movie. And they're walking around and he's like, I'm not going to be a writer. It's stupid. Writing is stupid. Like he's basically at that point. And that's where Chris is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, shut up. That's not true. Right. Because again, you kind of need someone again. And, and you need that, especially I think if you are pursuing something like writing or the arts and, you know, as opposed to getting a, a real job, um, quote unquote, especially I think when you're working in this kind of working class town, it's the 1950s. It's very like uh, binary, right? You go and you do this thing and you get your job and you shut up and you do your nine to five and that's your American dream, kid. But if you want to be a writer, well, you automatically know that's going to be a lifetime of feast and famine and struggle. So... <sighs> And that dynamic exists to this day. I mean, God, like Chris and Chris and Corey and I talked about that endlessly on our old podcast, yeah. Creative Commoners, that, that battle between following the creative life and having a real job yeah. um, and how those intersections can be very messy and difficult to navigate. Um, you see that very much at play in this story. And every creative person wants to be the creative person to follow those pursuits and be the writer and actually do it as a career. I think you need yeah. a, you need a Chris Chambers in your life or somebody to just say, shut up, do the thing, because this is something that clearly you want to do and that you're meant to do. And this is who you are. And don't let your the voice of the doubters get in your head. More than neglectors. <laughs> the neglectors. Absolutely. It's amazing how you just get to the heart of everyone in this story. Do you guys feel like Vern got less play? I was actually about to ask you guys if you remember a Vern moment with the vulnerability because I'm I can't remember. It's not a vulnerability, it's more of like him taking control. Cause you know, Teddy just keeps beating up on him too for flinching mm-hmm. and he keeps hitting him and insulting him. And finally there's that point where you know they're talking about do they go back after Gordy has the mm. leech incident, like should we go back? And then Vern says something like, oh, maybe we should. It's like, oh, no surprise. The king of the pussies himself. He's like, stop calling me that. And he kind of has this moment where he, he basically pushes Teddy to the ground and starts beating up on him. He's like, mm-hmm. two for flinching. And so he kind of gets his comeuppance. But I don't think he ever has a moment where he's vulnerable. It's almost like he's been vulnerable the whole movie. And he kind of like. Toughens up. Yeah, he kind of gets his moment. To, it's almost he has almost a reverse trajectory. But I also think like we learn a little less about him. I mean, the main things we know are he has this JD brother who hangs out with Ace Merrill and Eyeball Chambers, and he buried some pennies. And oh, by the way, we all know that his brother dug up the pennies years ago, but he's still digging for them. Don't forget, Kate. Um, I brought a comb. 
<laughs> and he brought the combs for, for no reason. I mean, to be fair, the guy who played Vern, uh, Jerry, um, Jerry O'Donnell, O'Connell, O'Connell, yet yeah, goes and marries Rebecca Romaine. So, I mean, yeah, so you he know, gets, he wins in the end. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, what's so funny. He was the youngest. They said that he was only 11 when they started shooting. Yeah. And Reiner was like, he came in and did the audition and left and came back in. He's like, aren't you that guy on channel five? Like, <laughs> cause he remembered him from as meathead from all in the family. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> it's just this great story, but yeah. Uh, it, it was really nice to hear from the three main actors in the, if you have the DVD version with the commentary and the behind the scenes, like the featurette, they're really great insights. Um, it, it, it's definitely worth listening to it. What's interesting though, if we consider Vern against the other three, I also feel that it's fair and valid to consider that there are just people like this out there yep. that are not very complex. They're not carrying around a lot, a, a, a deep core of uh, woundedness. For every Gordy, you get a Vern, right? Yeah. Right. And and so I feel he does represent a real uh, per type of person who, yeah, he just kind of goes through life. I desperately do wish, though, that the ending for Vern in the movie had been the one in the book, because I feel like in a fairer world that would have been Vern's life he would have married some gal and had a gaggle of kids and become a used car salesman and yeah. you know I, I feel like that could have been his life if if he hadn't been maybe drafted for Vietnam that probably would have been his outcome so now you know we've we've highlighted sort of the the more or less high and low moments of their adventure. Oh yeah. And even briefly, like this wasn't in the movie, by the way, uh, Gordy, when he gets the food at the grocery store, he did go into the grocery store to get it, but it was a very quick and, and easy kind of transaction. There was no lingering there, but in the book, um, the, the clerk behind the counter tries to rip him off and yeah. he's also a jerk. Unreliable <laughs> so, adult. Yeah. Another bad grown up. Does he basically put his thumb on the scale to try yep. to yeah. charge him more? Yeah. A literal thumb on the scale. While he's talking about his brother. Yeah. 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 And Gordy calls him out on it, which good for you, kid, which just shows that Gordy, despite being neglected, I mean, he doesn't put up with any bullshit. You know, he, he called the dude out. And of course, the dude ended up taking it poorly. <laughs> So, but he got his burgers and he got his, his buns and he got out of there. Oh, I forgot to mention, of course, we talked briefly about how the scene on the train trestle was shot in the film, but Vern, it, they're crossing this, the river, the Royal River, and it is a massive, it's about a mile across. So anybody who's been near at a very large river, which yeah. I mean, I live in Ohio, so yes, we are river country here can envision this and then you imagine this giant train trestle that what did they say it was about 100 feet 50 yeah feet above i think so yeah um by the way that trestle is no longer there it's in the film oh, really <laughs> there's no longer a train crossing at that part of the river i read that so um anybody trying to look for this thing you're not going to find it uh and i imagine and since this movie was shot in oregon it was probably like the columbia river that that was over and there's no railing there's no nothing no. and you can see the water between the slats yeah <sighs> God. Okay, um, Chris. Well, all of us are true crimeys here. Delphi, the Monon High Bridge. The Monon High Bridge. Have you ever seen 
that yep. bridge. I that's have. oh Jesus. No it's a way. Scary bridge. And that's like a baby version and still like compared to this bridge, but still it's even just the thought of it is very terrifying. Yeah, yeah. And these kids, they have to cross it. They've they talked about how do we go? We could try to ford the river. I think one of them suggested that. And they were like, oh, God, no. I mean, there's we'll die. They don't want to like spend the hours that it would take to go around. They want to to find a better bridge. Like this yeah, is they're the like, way take across. 10 minutes to cross it. Let's go. And I find myself constantly referring to the moment where Gordy bends down to touch the rail and he feels it thrumming to me. I always compare that sensation of feeling the rail vibrating in your hand to how I feel when I have a high anxiety moment or I've had too much caffeine, like mm. the inside of my body feels like that rail vibrating. <laughs> and, and I, so that moment is always stuck with me, him bending down and touching that rail and feeling it. And of course, as he builds the scene, as most brilliant writers do the first couple times he touches it, it's fine. And then the other kids get across and I love the moment when it was a Chris, when he steps off and Gordy for a moment just feels hatred. Yeah. <laughs> He's like yeah. mad. He's like, how dare Because he's stuck behind Vern. Who's, who's crawling. Yeah. Crawling. <laughs> and let's pour one out for the comb. At least in the movie, the comb falls out of his pocket. <laughs> falls out and falls down. Sorry, but his one contribution, man. Yeah, the, is gone. <laughs> And so the emotion of that scene, and then of course he bends down to touch the rail and he feels the shake. Yeah. And then he looks behind him and you can see the smoke coming from the train smokestack. And you were like, Oh God. And, and that's the best part, not seeing the train, but just uh -huh. the smoke. I feel like seeing the train would have been cheaper. The fact yeah. that, you know, it's coming, you hear it, you hear the, and you just see that billowy. Cause you're instantly like, how much time do they have? The trains probably go on about 30 miles an hour. I'm yeah. guessing. And then the kid, you can at best, anybody at best is probably running about seven to eight miles per hour. Oh, so yeah. you're not out running that thing, nope. and, you know, and then you're behind Vern who <laughs> bless his heart. Finally, just he sees his life be flashed before his eyes and they're booking it. But you have to think like the space in between at any moment, you could twist an ankle. You can get stuck. You could Leg just can go through. Yep. Yeah. Trip and fall. It's so terrifying and so brilliantly written. And you really do get a sense that this is coming down to the wire. And and it, at that point, I mean, it you really don't know what if one of them did get killed and then you also think they're going to find the body of a kid who was hit by a train it did get hit yeah so the encounters that they have with trains on this adventure going to find somebody who was hit and killed by a train mm -hmm. you know kind of interesting um little tie in there at the end when they finally just in my mind they escaped it by like a half second you know um and then teddy's yelling Oh, very cool. Very cool. The ultimate train dodge, you know, like he's, <laughs> he's all amped up about it. Teddy was digging it. And didn't they kind of have to, they kind of jumped before they even got to the end. They had to, they had to jump off. Yeah. Vern and uh, um, Gordy do. Teddy and Chris are so far ahead, like you said, yeah. that. But the funny thing is, as much as he ended, he's under the train dodge, notice he wasn't standing on the tracks, also trying to dodge it. You know, it's one of those things where the macho 
kind of uh, thought that he had at the beginning versus the reality that you might yeah. get killed by this train. It's very interesting. It's very understated. Well, that just shows a moment of growth for Teddy, right? Like he had some breakthroughs, I think, in the course of that. I mean, maybe that's what it is. Had Having had both of those encounters where he's just been kind of faced with reality, maybe it is a slightly different Teddy on that trestle. So I guess Will Wheaton could actually run way faster than uh jerry o'connell um and but of course he had to like fake that you know this oh, right no, Chris? You're, you're thinking about the scene where they race in the junkyard oh okay. and it's against okay. river phoenix and yeah. basically will Wheaton right. could run faster than river phoenix so he's like how do i fake it and rob reiner's like just pump your arms and just you know make <laughs> it look like you're really exerting a lot of effort it's <laughs> sort of like the um the Tom Cruise run, right? With the arms, <laughs> pumping the arms real fast. I remember what it was. It was another trivia bit that I read about the scene with the train was Rob Reiner was trying to get these kids to really look truly terrified. He and he was screamed screaming at them. at them, trying to get them to look scared. Yeah, they weren't doing it right because, again, the train's way, it's like hundreds of yards away from them. Mm-hmm. And Reiner is basically like, you're wasting our time. The crew is tired. If you're not going to get it right, I'll come after you. Like he's screaming at him. He's like, they started crying. He's like, roll camera, roll camera. (laughs) (laughs) And then he felt a little bit of regret, but like right after it, they were like beaming, like we got it, Rob, we got it. They like give him a hug and everything. Time and then time again, throughout the making of the movie, they talked about how Rob Reiner used so much of his experience as an actor to help these kids find the place that they needed to be and without directly telling them he just really organically helped them find the moment with river phoenix and i think in the moment when he has his own little breakdown about the milk money i think Uh um he told river remember a time in your life when an adult let you down just focus on that and that did it like that got him yeah you could feel it and he had to go be comforted after that as well and honestly as were Phoenix in his upbringing. I mean, like I said, the, the Phoenix clan, they were brought up in a cult. They were in the children yeah. of God cult. And there was a lot of shit that happened in that cult. I highly recommend people go and talk about it, probably talk about it on this show at some point. But I think he had a deep well to dig from in that and explains a lot of his intensity as an actor, a lot of his brother's in te- intensity as an actor as well so again helping them find that moment he even did such a great job with Kiefer Sutherland who played Ace Merrill because this was Kiefer's big acting role at the time his first job right? his first big job I think yeah yeah before he was a SoCal vampire exactly before he got into Lost Boys yeah I still love that movie such a good movie (laughs) and he talked about how like when early in the film when he encounters Gordy and he steals his baseball cap. Oh yeah. That's a great story. And yeah. Rob Reiner. And his brother gave him his first, his first inclination was to put the hat on. And Rob was like, no, Ace would never mess up his hair. Um, you and also he's like, to, it would mean nothing to you. He hands it to eyeball. They go off and then they think to themselves, what did you do with the hat? Well, you threw it away. He, he would have thrown it away. So again, it was like Rob truly understood these characters and these kids. And also as an actor himself, 
understood how to get them to tap into that. Um, he prepped these kids so well. He gave them the music. He gave them the sling. They had like two weeks of basically training, like boot camp, if you will. I mean, yeah. that sounds a little more rigorous, but basically they were playing like games, improv, and just doing different activities to build a rapport with each other. And he's like a lot of other directors with kids would basically be off camera feeding lines and they just keep doing it until the kids got it right. And he's like, and they'd make the movie an editing process. And that's why, like, if you watch this movie, he has these long scenes, walk and talk scenes. There are no breaks. There's no cutaways. There's no nothing. That's how well he worked with those kids. They were able to do these long scenes, multiple lines of dialogue and just nail it. Yeah. They're so good. And it really speaks to the way that he approached this. And to your point, being an actor, they mm -hmm. call those folks actors, directors. And they're yeah. like, those are, those are the people that a lot of actors want to work for because they get it rather yeah. than like, I'm here George for the technical Lucas. aspect. I want the shoot <laughs> for instance. Yeah. Yeah. Which not, that's not exactly slam against George Lucas. That's just not the kind of director he is. And I think it shows. It does. It absolutely does. I mean, if you uh, look at, for instance, if you have to watch a movie that stars Liam Neeson and Ewan McGregor and Natalie Portman, three of the finest actors that we have working today, and they are wooden and uninteresting. That tells you they are not if you're working. making Samuel L. Jackson uninteresting. Oh, what my is God. wrong with you, right. sir? <laughs> that is not an actor's director. Right. <laughs> so, um, for sure. so yeah, it, it's um it's an interesting dynamic that he really put to play with them. And man, you would never know that those weren't kids of the 1950s. Yeah. They yep. nailed it. And I love to, apparently, uh, Kiefer, <laughs> in order to kind of stay in character, apparently he would like kind of pick on the kids, like yeah. on the set and everything. But he really bonded with them as well. And he bonded really well with River Phoenix. And Kiefer's talked about this in interviews as well about um, how the movie was always called The Body from, you know, the get-go when they were making it. And then there were talks about changing it anyway. It was never, they never felt it was quite the right title for the movie. And so um, he was teaching River Phoenix how to play Stand By Me on the guitar in between scenes. And that ended up being what they ended up going with. So that's interesting because Reiner said that that was the intended song all along. Hmm. So that's interesting, yeah. but maybe they were playing it because they knew that was going to be the song. I that don't know. could very well be. I mean, it, it feels like that was like the vibe. And Reiner said that's also, to his knowledge, one of the few songs that was a hit twice. Like the same recording, not a read, you know, not a right. cover, not a, anything like that. The exact same recording, originally a hit. And then after this movie came out, was another big hit. I was like, yeah. Kiefer Sutherland's portrayal is so great. I mean, it is. He's so what he is, and he's he's scary. Like that scene where they're playing chicken. That blonde white hair, yeah. that very piercing stare. And another actor would overdo it, right? They'd over, they'd chew on the scenery. And he does, he's one of those I'm doing a lot with a little. And his voice. I would say both of the Sutherlands, Donald, Do Daddy Donald, yeah. and Keeper. <laughs> these are Love the guys. Him. Oh, I love them so much. Yeah. Um, they both 
act with their voices. Like the sound and the timbre of their voices play so much into the characters that they play. Nobody sounds like either of them. And they both have very different voices from one another. Even as father and son, they don't sound really that much alike. But the sound of their voice, you know when you're hearing Keeper Sutherland talk. And there's something about that tone of voice that he has that adds to that menace factor. He doesn't sound like a nice guy. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Like Kiefer is apparently by all accounts that I've read and seen of him, people love him. I mean, people love working with him. And also you would never know that he is a very small man. He is like five five that he is a very he's kind of got the tom cruise really? factor he's a wow. small man holy smokes most hollywood actors if you're not like adam driver adam driver is a like a beast yeah. of a man john lithgow yeah like you can tell like a tall actor most hollywood actors are pretty short in terms of stature they're you know usually under five ten um, most the, of them the box to make them taller whatever right right and so he but he has a presence on the screen that makes him feel much taller than he well, is it's so clear that he controls that whole gang mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. and then the, the scene where they're playing chicken in the cars like he's crazy he's absolutely crazy at the end he does a head nod and he's in control right he just yeah. nods his head and the gang starts to walk away from the altercation it's like yeah you're absolutely right well that's why that ending scene where the gang shows up and the boys are there and mm. they've found the body and they're getting ready to figure out what they're gonna do is like you've just watched him play chicken and almost like he's not gonna lose and then that's basically it's another game of chicken with you know are you gonna take off and leave us the body because now we want it and see this is the very interesting thing right so after all these misadventures the boys finally find ray brower and 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 the way that they come upon him is very interesting because they're very tired they're they went through a thunderstorm that was like the last thing and they have been through a lot at this point i think they all want to go home but they're just walking along, walking along, yeah. and all of a sudden they see, what is it, the foot sticking out of They the see the brush. back Harlow Road, and then they go down a little yeah, bit. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They find him, and... The finding is pretty quick. That feels very real. It is one yeah. of those things where you build it up, you build something up so much in your head that when it finally happens, it almost feels anticlimactic. I, I feel like King nails that sometimes really well in a lot of stories, like... You're just going along, going along, and this is building up, building up, and then bam, here it is. I don't think finding the body is is the whole point. Right. The only right. discussion they have while they're walking along is, hey, maybe it shouldn't be such a good time to go. It, maybe it isn't like a fun thing to yeah. go find him. And yeah. they get a little more solemn as a result. Like, maybe we need to think about what we're actually trying to do here. And th- But that's interesting that they finally have that realization because at the very beginning, it's like fame and money and then as they're going along and they're having these increasingly intense adult experiences that that make it more serious then yeah maybe we shouldn't be living it up here and then they find him and i think that's when it all comes down uh to them really having to confront death and mortality They've already confronted it in a lot of ways on the way there. But when they finally stand next to an actual corpse, and honestly, for me, um, my first time 
encountering a corpse was at a funeral. It was an open casket, but it was very much a similar kind of moment. And I was about 16, 17 and looking down into that and seeing that was like my first confrontation. And it really is interesting how it changes everything. It's like, oh, this person who was once alive that I knew very well, that was very happy and full of life is now just laying in a box. Oh my God. And to them, they're seeing this boy about their age lying in the grass with his shoes off because the train knocked him out of them. Yeah. Knocked him out of his his heads. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's his blueberry bucket. He was just picking blueberries. He just went out to pick blueberries, got hit by a train. And, you know, they all confront that to the point that, after they see him, they're like, we're just going to go home. We're just going to call it in anonymously. They're not interested. And I think that just shows the fact that the four of them have a quorum about this. Yeah. Is really shows who they are. You might expect like Teddy or Vern to mm-hmm. be like, no, let's, let's go through with our plan to call, right. get in, get on the radio, get in the newspaper. But they all seem to sort of, quietly understand that that's the right thing to do and then of course ace and his buddies show up and in the book and i can't remember i think in the movie there were some cutaways too i can't Mm -hmm. remember to the to the gang i can't the the, you follow the gang pretty much the whole time without the whole baseball cap stuff Mm -hmm. not in the book like that's really a way to introduce the gang you kind of hear about them at the beginning and then there's nothing and they show up at the end yeah like the whole baseball, the mailbox baseball, that's all, yeah. all of that is, you know, they're doing the tattoos and the they're tattoos, talking. They're at the and, pool hall. Yeah. All yeah. That stuff. That's all added, which makes sense for a movie. Right. And the story kind of makes sense. It's like, I'm telling my story with my friends and then these guys show up. Yeah. So to you their don't experience, know. Yeah. This is all totally from Gordy's. That's right. That's a very good point. But for a sense. movie, you kind of have to have that parallel story going along so it it makes sense in both cases and yeah so yeah they show up and they have their little showdown and this is another instance of where you know ace obviously got through to the gang and they decided they're going to go and and find the body and they're going to try to take credit and of course they you know the boys don't want to let them do that and you know shit is about to get real ace is about to cut these kids and that's when chris in the book pulls out his gun and fires it up in the air, which to me makes sense in the context of Chris being the the peacekeeper mm-hmm. uh, of it. And of course it's his dad's gun. And the in the movie, it's Gordy who fires the gun to kind of make everybody quit, which makes sense in the movie to a certain extent, because, you know, he's, he is the lead actor. He's the lead character. I feel like, I could see why they made that slight adjustment, I guess. Reiner said that to him when he adapted it, this was a story about Gordy and his arc. And so he imbues Gordy with a little more of, frankly, his own experience. Because he's like, I connected with this character because I had periods of my life where I didn't think my dad loved me or I had no real connection with him. Of course, his dad, very successful director as well, oh, Carl Reiner, right? Carl, R.I.P. He only died yeah. a couple of years ago. Yeah. But he's like, you know, I, I identified with that at that time in my life. So to him, it's like he he wanted this trajectory. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I like that. I like that a lot. And, and it just goes to show when you are writing a screenplay, when you're adapting something, then you have your own creative license as well, that you make these decisions for your own reasons. You are 
the writer and it is a separate medium and it is not always your obligation to adhere to everything in your source material. Yeah. So, um, so I think both decisions absolutely valid. Um, and I stand by them. And of course this was enough to get Ace to back down, um, which it was amazing moment for the moment. (laughs) But Ace says, you guys are going to pay for this. We're going to hurt you very badly. And of course in the book they do. In yeah. the yeah. book, all the boys get beaten all to hell um, in separate incidents um, over time. Gordy, we hear about, he he takes it pretty damn hard. He gets beaten all to hell. Gordy's is kind of like the first beatdown. It comes relatively quickly. So each one of them, definitely, like Ace, he sticks to his word. And of course, the body of Ray Brower is called in anonymously. Like mm-hmm. nobody gets credit for it. It's just called in. Yeah. So at the end of it, like Ray gets found, but whatever this silent battle that's going on between these two gangs is fought in, you know, in secret off camera, you know, nobody knows about it, which I think is fascinating too. If you're reading a story about this in the paper, you don't have, you don't have any idea that, uh, four young boys and four older boys are battling it out over who gets to call it in and get credit for it. That never gets told. Or the four, for the main characters, it's almost like a moral decision that he, it not be a getting in the newspaper kind of thing, that it that it be respectful. Um, I think it's supposed to show some sort of growth on all of their parts, different kinds of growth. Um, and then, of course, immediately, you know, they turn around and hike all night, they say, and get back to town pretty quickly. And we yeah. don't, there's nothing, there's nothing about whatever happened during walking back the 20 or 30 miles that they have to walk. Um, because for them, it's, it's closed. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me and that the whole goal is to just get back and now they got to go to school and and this is this has changed them, but they're done having this experience. Doesn't it feel like it a little bit too? Like they have this yeah. experience, but in it, they physically forget. Like yes. there, there is a physical forgetting that happens. It's part of the mechanism of um, the supernatural element. Right. Um, but it happens in this instance too, but there's no supernatural element at play. Well, and I think also like even on a regular experience, I'm sure we've all been on a trip, like a road trip, let's say, and you're really excited when you start and you're chatty and la la la. And, but and everything trip, is meaningful every yes, step of the way. Like, oh, look at that. You know, it's all fun. Yeah. And then that last tail end of it, you just want to get home. That is literally something I just went through. Yeah. <laughs> and not a lot of conversation. Yeah. You know, it's not like it's bad. It's just you're more silent. You're kind of more reflective. And so there's even like a normal mapping onto it, but yeah, to uh, Kate, to your point, it's like, there's also, there's really not anything else to to say. Like it's the decision's been made and now it's just getting home at this point. Mm-hmm. There's no and, more adventure to be had. And they realize too, they don't have the provisions that they need, you know, and of course they have to really get home before their parents really start to notice. And I think, um, well, Gordy gets, nobody noticed Gordy's gone. Unfortunately, none of them, I think. Uh, maybe it was Vern's mom would have been the one who would have been kind of the busybody element of all this if she wanted to connect or compare notes with any of the other parents. But, you know, as far as we know, there weren't any real repercussions that way. So they were able to just kind of get home and uh, get back to life. But I mean, imagine too, I mean, 
I, you know, I haven't had kids that age at one point. And if one of them was carrying around something like that inside them, that they went and they found a body and they saw a dead body in the woods and then they almost got beat up over it. And then they did get beat up. I mean, my God, <laughs> it, it's, it's one of those things where sometimes, you know, we talk about adults that carry secrets around and carry things around in them. Um, you know, teenagers, kids, teenagers, they absolutely have their own uh, universe and yeah, that they live absolutely. in um, that doesn't include us grownups. Well, that's what makes King's writing about um, kids so powerful, I think, is because he allows them to have that stuff. He does not infantilize them. Or he makes them real people with real and meaningful things to carry around. Um, and if you think back to that age, it certainly felt like we did have those heavy things to carry around. And some people actually did at that age have those things. And these are all kids that do clearly as you get to know them. One thing I wanted to ask you guys is, have you guys um, read uh, King's book on writing? Yes. Yeah. So you have. Yeah. So one of the things he talked about in there that I've always found really interesting is he talks about his own memory. Mm -hmm. And he says, some people have these great memories where they can literally remember, you know, step by step, minute to minute or hour to hour what happened. And they can relay that. And he says his memory is more like, you know, driving in the fog and trees are coming out of the fog and mm. that are like memories. And so for me, that's how my memory is too. My partner's memory is, you know, like, yeah, at 11.03, we went here and we did it. <laughs> and I'm like, what? I don't even remember what we watched last night. Um, so Chris, when you were talking about how this is so autobiographical, it's interesting to me that he has these, they're emotional memories more than they are like maybe actual event memories. I, I don't know. I guess maybe he went through some of these things, but the emotion of them has definitely made a memory imprint. I just find it so interesting given that he said that his memory is spottier than that. Yeah. that he's able to so accurately recall this. I feel like King does a brilliant demonstration of, so Everybody who writes something or wants to write something, I should say, they often have this thing of like, I lived a crazy life and had some crazy experiences. I'm going to write a book about it. Or I want you to write a book about my crazy life and my crazy experiences. And the thing is, is that when you actually do sit down to try to write a story, especially a fictional story, or even a memoir for that matter, but really in the realm of fiction, and you find like when you try to do a fiction story that's a, a beat by beat account of a real thing, it's flat. It, it doesn't work for some reason, even though you're telling the truth, like the chronological event filled truth of it, it's not working. It needs something else. And I think what King did here is he took these emotional experiences and these moments that he could recall, but he fills it in with this artistry. I wrote a story um, called Daddy's Glasses, and it's on my website. And I wrote it largely based on events that happened in my mother's childhood that she told me about when um, I was a kid that I've known about my whole life. Like she lost her baby brother and her father committed suicide. And there is a lot of darkness in that. And so much of that story is true, is very biographical on the account of my my mother, but it has a deeply supernatural element and there are some other things added to it that I had to add because if I just told it 
as she remembered it, it would not, well, it wouldn't be fiction for one thing, but it also just wouldn't be what makes fiction special. I think the only way you get away with it is you're like a David Sedaris where it's not, this happened and this happened and this happened. You know, yeah. it's more of this like pastiche, this, yeah. there's a theme and a flow to it. And, and a lot of license. Like, I don't think he tells, you know, the virtual truth. Absolutely. Day. Right. I think, yeah, exactly. It's like, there's a little bit of, it's creative nonfiction is what I would like. To, I, I kind of think of it as where it's like, you're taking that license because reality is not, I mean, for this man to have done all the things he's done for yeah. all these books, but it is, you take the kernel and then you kind of build around it. And I think you're right, Allison, it, it can very much feel like, so we did this and then this happened, but hold on because you wouldn't believe it. Then this happened. And right. it just, it feels more like you're journaling than you're uh, writing a story. And I think yeah. that someone like a Sedaris can craft that into a, a tale that's compelling yeah. where it doesn't feel like that. And it, it's interesting. It has a storytelling flavor to it that is just... I don't know what I'm trying to say anymore. It's magical. But. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're absolutely right. There, are like, I mean, I keep thinking of it as like the bubbles in the soda, right? Uh, like you have your base mix, your your syrup, your, and that's your reality. But if you want to make it into soda pop, you got to add the carbonation. Some and emotional carbonation. Yeah, emotional carbonation. <laughs> yeah. That is the new term. I, we You've coined it. It stands. It we is. We also coined Big Goocher Energy. Let's just Big let's Gucci give us. <laughs> we need a lot of credit for all the things we came up with. I feel very much like we covered the gamut of this story, and to tie it back in many ways to um, that initial quote, especially the part that Kate added about, "Do you know we ever have friends like we had when we were twelve? Yeah. And no, we do not. But at the same time, I think there is a reason that at least privately, in many ways, I act like I'm still 12 with most of my friends. And I think that is because there is a certain magic to having that kind of energy and that kind of um, the inside jokes and the, the things that you carry with you and the things yeah. that keep it vibrant and interesting. And so even if you're not 12, you know, and I was not far from 12 when I met Chris. I was 13, in fact. Yeah. So um, I feel like maintaining that, staying 12 and 12 in your friendships is probably the way to stay young I, in your heart, yeah. <laughs> your very secret heart. Yeah. <laughs> so um, does anybody have anything else to add before we wrap this sucker up? One thing, and that is that, I think for me, always the story made such a huge impact because my parents got divorced when I was like 11 and a half. So I left a pretty small town and moved yeah. to a much bigger town, I left that group of friends and found another one. But it, the timing of it feels so, because that was such a huge uproar in my life that yeah. it always felt very close to me um, because that time was so important and those friends were so important and it was kind of changed fundamentally. So that's the only thing I would add. I feel that with Chris too. I'm going to pull you into that too. Cause Chris, I know you moved around a good bit when you were a kid and you had some, you know, changes in your life as well. Yeah. So I imagine that that maybe plays into the way you relate to it in some ways too. You know, that's interesting. I, I don't know that it did. 
um, I did move around a lot. And so there was the, the change almost became the normal, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, not that it wasn't hard when I did it, but I think just to me, it was thinking, I, I think it really did tap into all of those childhood memories I had and the experiences mm-hmm. and the freedom we had to explore and make adventures and run around. And there's just something very romantic about railroads and railways. There's just something magical about them. And I, I can't quite put my finger on why, but I was always drawn to them, even as a kid, like trains and railway and just a train going by a crossing. And it just, it's almost like you could jump on board and go yeah. someplace magical because trains literally get to like train conductors get to see a part of the world. Most of us don't get to see. Right. So in a way they're, they are going on a magical journey, but that aspect, I think more than maybe some of the, the hardships is really what drew me in, but I can certainly relate to those pieces. And quite frankly, I feel like we could probably talk for another hour or so mm-hmm. To answer your earlier question, yes, there's more that I could say, but I think we've ended on a a pretty good note. So, And don't forget, you wanted to get it on with Will Wheaton. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, nothing against Will. It was very time specific. That door is closed, Will. I know you're itching for it. Sorry, buddy. He's no longer that train. Neither of us are at that. Exactly. Neither of us are at that point anymore. But it was a 13 year old thing. Yeah. Now we're just faces in the hall. Well, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, we do next week. We are going to prison, you guys. And um, and I am so excited to go to Shawshank. And I couldn't Mm. imagine two people that I would rather be there with. So yeah. um, So you're you one of you is the red and the other of you is the Andy and the other one is Brooks. So we'll just (laughs) somebody bring the pet bird. Wait, aren't you the aren't you the main uh you're the main guard. No, I can't remember his name. Oh my god, yes. (laughs) Oh my god. Yeah, but yeah. Um Somebody's got to be him, yeah. Byron Hadley. Yeah. Thank you so much, both of you, for being with yeah, me on this journey. Wonderful. We're oh, going to continue the journey, and hopefully, there will be many more. Because Kate, we love you. Love having you here. You're that just was, that a, was amazing, guys. You're a great voice. You're a great contributor, and there's so many other ways we can bring you into this ding dong darkness time uh studio so um in the meantime uh, wait is kate the queen ding dong to my king ding dong? she's she might just be the queen the queen, queen dong ding-dong. royalty royalty <laughs> i love it i am in the presence of royalty um, no, us. yes so please if you guys love this episode please go over to apple and give us a review um or reach out to me on twitter at dd darkness time also at gmail dd darkness time at gmail.com if you have any questions or suggestions or hate mail as was alluded to earlier and and go and listen to the full back catalog we got so much Stephen king we also have a whole season one on various aspects of the dark side of the arts and then season three is approaching also i'm working on putting together a whole sub part of the show called ding dong ditch which will be short episodes solo shallow dives instead of deep dives into topics that maybe don't warrant a full episode but are interesting and fun and i'm putting all that together right now it's all going to be part of the main feed 
and I'll have a little more information on that in the near future. With all that in mind, guys, go forth, read some Stephen King, and we'll catch you later. <laughs> Ding Dong Darkness Time has been brought to you and produced by yours truly, Allison Dixon. It was made possible by an array of amazing co-hosts, friends, family, but especially you, the listeners. Big shouts also go out to the brilliant Nathaniel Dixon for the show art and future legend Spencer Morlock for all the music. I'll be back again soon with another episode. In the meantime, be good, you little ding-dongs.